I'm your host, Brad Alvarez, and welcome back to the Senior Living Concepts Podcast. Today, I'm privileged to be joined by Scott Tardy, CEO of Glenner Alzheimer's Family Centers, as we record from this incredible town square replica in Chula Vista, California. Thanks for having me, Scott. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Scott, before we dive into your background, this concept is so different from anything that I've seen before, anything that I'm sure a lot of our listeners have seen before. Could you please tell us a little bit about this town center replica model? Sure, sure. So um, I think a couple things to, to, to start off with is that, you know, reminiscence therapy is not a new concept. It's actually been researched for the last, uh, you know, 50 plus years. In fact, uh, Dr. Ellen Langer out of Harvard, you know, did a, a tremendous amount of studies on reminiscence therapy and, and its impact on, on individuals. And so um, this is certainly not a, a new uh, concept as far as, as reminiscence therapy is concerned. I think what is new is trying to figure out a way to bring it into kind of an immersive uh, environment. And so we know uh, for any of us that's worked in, in the profession or with uh, individuals with uh, dementia that uh, reminiscence is one type of uh, therapy that can be used that uh, really does have an impact on individuals, uh, specifically reducing agitation, improving mood, improving sleep quality, all of which are you know, not only important to the individual, but certainly individual to the fa- uh, important to the family caregiver. Um, so Really what ended up happening was um, a lot of people are, have a misconception that Town Square was inspired by uh, Hogeve. Um, although Hogeve does incredible work, um, I have not personally been there, but I know a lot of people who have been there. Um, I think it's incredibly innovative, um, but it's a much different concept because uh, Hogeve, of course, is, is essentially a nursing home. Um, and certainly a residential model where Town Square, of course, is a, is, a, is a day program. So we're licensed as an adult day health care center by the state of California. In fact, we're uh, a medical model. So we're the, an adult day health care that's licensed by the California Department of Public Health. So um, we, we provide a variety of clinical services here as well. And I think what's, what's probably most important about that is that um, essentially, um, you know, my understanding of Hogave is that it's really, it's kind of a shared community space in that individuals from the community uh, end up going to like a shared restaurant, a shared grocery store. Again, all incredibly innovative, but uh, a lot different than what we have here because Town Square was inspired by a place called BizTown, uh, which is put on by Junior Achievement. And my daughter, who was 10 at the time, uh, she's you know, uh, almost 14 now, uh, went to this place where students go and it's a little city inside of a building. So, of course, I took my history, um, taking care of individuals with Alzheimer's for, for many years and put this uh, into the concept with reminiscence therapy. And I think really the key of all that is that people make their strongest memories uh, between the ages of 10 and 30. So what we did here was we tried to create an experience that's consistent with where people's strongest memories are. Absolutely, and I, and I just from doing my research beforehand, you know, I I saw that you spent you know pretty much your entire career working towards this, and not a lot of people gravitate towards aging services immediately after college. So I'm curious, how did you even get into this industry? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, you know initially I wanted to be a, a, a physician. I actually wanted to be a trauma surgeon. So um, you know, was an EMT, worked a lot in in kind of healthcare. Um, was it, worked in an emergency room as an ER tech and things like that. And um, uh, I, I think I determined pretty early on that I wanted to have a little bit different impact. 
and uh, actually had an opportunity to um, take a position where I was passing medications as a med tech in an assisted living, uh, and I was probably just just 20 at the time. Uh, but prior to that, I actually had worked in assisted living as uh, an Alzheimer's uh, in an Alzheimer's memory care unit as a caregiver. So that was actually one of my first jobs. And so um, when I moved to San Diego and I, I started going to school out here and eventually made it to San Diego State, at, at some point I just decided that I wanted to change my degree to psychology. Um, and I was fortunate because my wife uh, was working as a nurse in a, in, a, in a nursing home and the administrator was looking for a social services designee. So um, kind of asked what the qualifications were and um, pretty, pretty uh, consistent with what my background was and he was willing to give me an opportunity which I was very thankful for. Um, gave me certain days off so that I could still go to school and uh, the rest is kind of history. I, I finished um, school but in, in, in that time frame um, actually a position opened up as an administrator of an Alzheimer's facility as a skilled nursing facility and uh, while I was doing my administrator and training program um, my preceptor actually hung his license for me so I, I think uh, I officially had my first building um, and was licensed as a nursing home administrator maybe when I was 24. Mm. So um, I always remember it was funny because people used to come up and, and ask, uh, you know, come to my office and ask if they could speak to the administrator. You know, so it was, it was definitely, uh, um, I don't think they were used to seeing uh, what probably looked like their grandson in a lot of, you know, in a lot of the facilities. But um, that's, I felt very blessed to be able to have an opportunity early in my career. Uh, worked for a great organization and, um, and kind of worked my way up through that organization to be able to have, you know, my first opportunity as a nursing home administrator. I'm actually hoping that you could expand a little bit on that sure. first opportunity. I mean, again, to, to be an administrator at 24 years old, yeah. what kind of unique challenges did you face just by being so young and being in that leadership position? Uh, another great question. I, I think, honestly, I think it's probably, you know, a lot of that has to just kind of do with credibility, right? Because, I mean, you've got, you know, a lot of professionals around you, a lot of different department directors, uh, specifically directors of nursing, um, social services director, dietary director, or food service director. So these are people that are obviously uh, incredible professionals in their own right and are very familiar with a regulated environment. So you kind of come in, um, you know, not quite uh, as experienced to them or, or maybe significantly less experienced from them. But, you know, my experience was to just roll up my sleeves and get in there and, and show that... Uh, that I was capable of working right alongside of them, um, so that was that was challenging. But at the same time, I think it was it was a great example of of what kind of leader that I I feel is critical uh, to be in uh, nursing homes and assisted livings. Uh, you really have to be that kind of individual who wants to get in there and work with the team to look at the unique challenges that they have but I had incredible teams I've always had incredible teams I think one of the best advice pieces of advice I've always got um, it sounds a little bit cliche but it's it, I don't think there's really better advice is surround yourself with excellent people um, and uh, I was always been really fortunate to do that from from my first building to my team now it's, it's certainly great advice and and that actually transitions perfectly into my next question which is that you know my perception is that being an ED or a nursing home administrator is similar to being a CEO, albeit at a smaller scale. So I'm curious, how do you pull from your prior ED experience 
when you're making these decisions on a more macro level. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're right, right? I mean, an executive director is, is a lot like being a CEO of your, of your own building and your own business. I mean, I think now more than ever, um, organizations are looking for executive directors uh, and administrators to be uh, engaged and figure out their their markets um, and what's going to, they're looking, at least I like to think that they're looking to them uh, to be the experts of their building. Um, and, you know, I think my advice to higher leadership is make sure that you have individuals in your buildings that are um, have that pride of place, have that ownership in the building. Um, I know more and more organizations are, are looking to that model where there actually is ownership opportunities for executive directors and administrators. Again, I, that's each individual organization's decision, but you can see why that makes a lot of sense because um, these executive directors uh, are the ones that are setting the tone for that building. And I think specifically are the ones that are engaging uh, local businesses, reaching out for contracts, reaching out for um, different partnerships. And we know now that in healthcare, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like a mini ACO model. You know, uh, organizations want to do business with kind of the same organizations. I mean, certainly there's choice and patient choice and all that kind of thing, but um, it's very important. But at the same time, um, y- you know, you, you have to be a leader that is willing to showcase your building, showcase the results that you can have in your building, and um, y- you want to have that consistency in the leadership because unfortunately I think what plagues our profession is that there's a lot of turnover. And so when you have uh, executive directors that only last an average of, what, 18 months, um, y- you really miss a wonderful opportunity for people to uh, build relationships and rapports with those uh, nursing homes and assisted livings because they're a huge part of the continuum, um, but they fall out of uh, kind of favor, if you will, when there's so much turnover because uh, people obviously do business based on relationships. So that's, that's kind of a long-winded answer, but that's, that's really what, uh, to me, is why it's so important for nursing homes uh, and assisted livings to uh, really figure out ways that they can get their executive directors to think more like a CEO of their own uh, business um, instead of more kind of like uh, just just another kind of piece in the puzzle. They, they need to engage them at a leadership level. So related to that, the culture would have to come from, you know, come down from the top, that mentality to, you know, to take more ownership of it. Well, I think so because, you know, unfortunately what ends up happening uh, I, equ- I equate uh, nursing homes and assisted livings a lot to like uh, like professional sports leagues, you know. So what ends up happening is uh, higher leadership makes changes, uh, and essentially those leaders go on to different buildings. So it's the same players kind of get recycled into different organizations. And what really needs to happen is. It, Obviously, higher leadership needs to understand, or senior leadership in organizations needs to understand what is motivating to that individual. So this is a this is a huge issue in my mind because presumably you hired an executive director uh, because they had the knowledge, skills, and abilities to do the job, right? So um, they come in and they start to understand the landscape and um, 
you know, quality of care and all these kinds of uh, really important pieces to building a successful building end up being important, but sometimes uh, not stressed as much as financial and census and things like that. So there starts to become this divide where nursing home administrators and executive directors of assisted living communities, they're doing great work, but they're, they're, they're missing opportunities to really understand perhaps how to be kind of the complete package nursing home administrator or executive director. So yes, you have to ensure quality. Yes, you have to ensure customer service. Yes, to have you know regulatory compliance, but certainly you also have to know how to run your business successfully. So the challenge, though, ends up being where I think senior leadership will often not spend enough time investing in some of the areas that the administrator or the executive director is not as strong in. So that ends up being where they end up uh, ultimately making a change where there was probably a lot of good things that that individual was doing, um, but for whatever reason was lacking the ability to set expectations or hold people accountable. Uh, but in my experience, it usually is financial, right? So it's usually census or, so the question is, is what is senior leadership doing to look at that and determine, is that something that has been plaguing the building for a long time? You know, did that person just come in and they were at 97% occupancy and then they it plummeted down to 78%? What was the reason for that? You know, is there is there a sales culture that's missing? Is there, you know, so I, I feel like the diagnostic part is often missing and senior leadership just ends up making a change and then you're right back where you started. In fact, you're probably several steps behind where you started because now that reputation in the community is this building starts to churn executive directors and then you start to, you know, typically you lose directors of nurses because DONs follow administrators and then there's just this whole kind of ripple effect and I would argue that when you make that change and granted there are times to make those changes but if you make that change you're probably stunting that progress significantly that you might have avoided by investing in that individual. And so I, my advice to a lot of organizations is make the investment in, in your people. You hired them for a reason, so figure out where you can bolster them up and you'll probably have a much more long-term loyal administrator and successful community because of that. That's incredible. And it shows how passionate you are. Just, just seeing yeah. your eyes is a... <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it. it's, and I appreciate you saying that because it's, because it's frustrating because I have a lot of colleagues that have gone through that, you know, and, uh, and, and again, and I, that's why I go back to the professional sports analogy because, you know, um, it just ends up being where you have talented individuals, but for whatever reason, just was not a good fit. And, um, uh, it would be nice to see our organization have, we are, we already, sh uh, well, our, our, um, I should say it would be nice for the, uh, profession as a general, uh, as a general rule, to be more um, understanding of the, pers I guess, of the perspective that a lot of people have about nursing homes and assisted livings. I mean, we we struggle with um, uh, with our reputation as a profession because of the fact that we're already dealing with people having a hard time making a decision of going into a nursing home or an assisted living. So, um, you know, I don't think you have that same perception with hospitals because hospitals typically have much more stable leadership. Um, obviously, it's, it's, a, it's a shorter term stay and things like that, but um, they do a better job with their kind of outward public relations 
than I than I think traditionally nursing homes and assisted livings have. And I, you know, I I think it's fascinating to see the way that those organizations kind of brand and market themselves. Um, and that's why you saw like uh, hospitality come into assisted livings and nursing homes for a while and then quickly go the other way because they just really didn't understand, uh, it wasn't their fault, but they didn't understand that there's just a totally different public perception of healthcare than there is hospitality. So. Surely, and, and you know, thank you so much for expanding yeah. on, on the people, on expanding on you know, the systems at play. I'd be curious to talk a little bit more about the intentional design mm -hmm. that your team has created here at Glenarm. So I've read how you partnered with the San Diego Opera sure. to create what are essentially 3D sets almost where you know individuals can go and explore and experience that reminiscence therapy. How did that come to play and, and what are some of the unique design features that you know, people might overlook when they come here for the first time? Sure. So. Um one of the things that uh, came up when, when I first presented this to my board back in early 2016, so we're just a little over three years uh, since I actually presented the concept on a piece of paper. Um, so that in and of itself has been quite a journey, but I think when I first presented it, uh, it was all about creating this immersive environment. It was all about creating um, kind of this 1950s, 1960s environment because um, a majority of our participants are in their early 80s. So uh, kind of doing that backwards math, they would have been you know, kind of in their strongest memory period between 1953 and 1961. So one of my board members actually said, you know, it seems to me that it's a lot like, you know, like set design. Um, and I said, yeah, you know, I, I think so. And, and, and it was a great kind of uh, opportunity for me to start exploring the, the design of it uh, from that perspective. You know, definitely had a vision for the storefronts and what they look like, but it was really exciting to reach out to, um, you know, an organization that specialized in set design and so when I first went in and I'm right, this was straight Google search you know I mean it was just um, and lo and behold the San Diego Opera had uh, a scenic studio that was doing not only obviously design for their operas but they did set builds for other operas throughout the world and shipped them plus they were doing things for like comic-con and um, different video game um, conventions uh, I think they do a lot of some some movie and commercial productions. So um, I reached out, and I got to tell you, they didn't they didn't even bat an eye. They were like, um, "This sounds like a great project." So we're obviously two nonprofits coming together and and um, figuring out a way to make this uh, reality. So I met a wonderful uh, gentleman there who's the uh, charge scenic uh, artist, and um, we really hit it off. And and. You know, I was texting him pictures, and he was like, and he just he just got it. He was like, you can send me all the pictures you want, but I'm I got it. You know, he's like, I, he knew exactly what that vision was, and um, they created the first um, storefront for an event that we had back in September of 16, and and I think I knew we were really in business at that point because they. The beauty of that work, um, which was City Hall, was so impressive. And even though the opera didn't end up building a majority of the sets, they, you know, we had contractors do that on site. Um, they were obviously instrumental in the design, kind of the vertical design of it. So we had our original concept architect, we had our original design um, influence from the opera, and then of course we had kind of the more practical application through contractors and local architects and what. But it, it took those initial 
um, kind of visions to get to this point. And, and that was the whole concept, was to try to create an immersive experience, um, multiple storefronts. Um, and the way our program works, of course, is participants are grouped in, in typically groups of five, and they rotate through the storefronts very much like you or I rotated classes in high school or college. You spend about 45 or 50 minutes in each storefront. Um, we have a, vari a variety in, of diverse programming that's all uh, done by our, our great you know, recreational team here. And, um, and, and we do what we've done for the last you know, three and a half decades is, is create uh, a respite day program model for um, you know, family caregivers and, and at the same time giving our participants you know, an experience that you know, hopefully is meaningful to them. And the, the individuals that are grouped together as they rotate through the different storefronts, how do you select those groups? Is that based off cognitive level, based off interest? Where, where does that come from? It's exactly that. It's both those things. So, um, you know, depending on the programming of the day, I mean, we may have some larger groups, some smaller groups, depends on, on kind of what's kind of pre-programmed. Um, and we'll do our programming about a month in advance. Um, but it is absolutely based on, uh, and, we're, and we're evolving to even a sh kind of a deeper um, engagement with that, uh, where not only is it, is it um, functioning level, you know, as far as cognitive functioning, but also um, likes and, and, and interestingly enough, dislikes. So if there's kind of an aversion to a certain storefront or, or even just a lack of engagement, um, we can work to avoid that storefront so that they're engaging more in the storefronts that are meaningful to them. Because there are 14 different programmatic areas, um, you know, as you can imagine, right, I mean, they'll, they'll probably only reach five to six in a day. Um, so that even creates a variety of, of opportunities. So, you know, you can kind of do the math and, you know, you have 14 different storefronts to the 14th power kind of thing. And, you know, you can have, you know, a variety of, of, um, uh, of tracks, if you will, that are created uh, through, the, through the design. And, and related to that, so you, know, you base the design around the early adulthood years of your, of your average resident. Uh, at what point will Glenner have to look into redesigning these storefronts as your incoming residents begin to come from a different era? Yeah, we've been asked that question a lot, and it's a really good one. Um, you know, my, my, my sense is that it'll probably be on a 10-year on basis. So it'll probably be, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to kind of evolve into 1964 to probably 1971, 1972, something like that, but probably not until uh, probably the next five to eight years or so. Um, our, our range right now is really from the late 50s as far as uh, our participants age to, interestingly enough, I have a participant here who's 100. So you can see there's a, you know, a, a variety, but I, I think it, it kind of, um, it speaks to the philosophy of, of to some degree, of, of use of space, right? So I've talked to a lot of architects, and we've had a lot of architects come through here. And you know, if you go to any major city, um, you're going to see new buildings, old buildings, that kind of thing. Um, you know, old buildings get um, remodeled. Um, you know, new buildings over time get updated. So this is the kind of the same thing. And and so here's what's interesting. So you know, the '50s type diner that we have. That may or may not ever really need to be updated because people still might have strong memories of a 50s diner through their childhood. I mean, I know that I, you know, uh, have still memories of 
diners, even though I didn't grow up in the 50s, I still, you know, there are still kind of retro diners that are around. So um, there are some, I guess what I would say probably best described right, as like kind of timeless storefronts. Um, you know, but if you look at something like the department store, you know, that probably has a longer uh, shelf life, if you will, as, as a storefront, but it may need to be updated with certain clothes and things like that to where, where at a point those designs just won't resonate with, with the participants any longer. So we're going to definitely have to keep our eye on it pretty closely, but I think ultimately we're, we're trying to figure out what the majority of the individuals that we serve and because the average age of our participant right now is in their early 80s we're still in kind of that sweet spot of mid 50s to to early 60s um, but I but to your point I mean I do see that changing over time and I do see us having to update the storefronts to have more consistent tangible prompts at the very minimum as well as perhaps updating you know just colors of uh, you know um, paints that are more 60s and 70s appropriate makes sense it's just yeah. fascinating that your team is already so ahead of this and anticipating these changing needs well until this terrible disease is eradicated from the planet and you know we can uh, rent town square out which interestingly enough we already are uh, for special events and things like that I and mean, we have an 18th birthday party coming up here in a couple weeks so um, that's what I love about town square uh, and, and certainly this organization, you know, it's, um, we have an opportunity to create more awareness um, through this type of space because interestingly enough, right, it's, it's inviting for people, right? So it takes some of that institutionalization piece away so that there is a, a draw, right? So here I get a chance to speak with you, I get a chance to speak with other individuals that, w you know, want to come in and understand more about this design, which interestingly enough brings more awareness to the disease, more awareness to family caregivers and you know, Dr. Glenner, may you rest in peace. I mean, he was a world-renowned research pathologist. He discovered the beta amyloid protein. So um, for someone like that and Joy Glenner, who's, um, you know, the co-founder of this organization, his wife, who's still very much involved in this organization, to have kind of shifted their research focus more towards or equally towards the challenges that family caregivers face. I mean, this is a huge issue, and we're just at the start of it. I mean, there's... In San Diego County, there's 84,000 people with Alzheimer's disease. That's diagnosed. Um, nationwide, I mean, that number is, what, 6 million? So, and we're going to go to triple that in, respectively, in the county, nationwide, um, in the next 25 years, 30 years, something like that. So we, we have got to get ready uh, for, uh, you know, the care component of things. I'm all about the cure. And I, um, you know, interestingly enough, Dr. Glenner never said the word cure. He said the answer. He was more, um, I think, inclined to think that there was more of an answer to this and kind of where the etiology of it is, how it could potentially be prevented than certainly, you know, curing it. Um, but at the same time, we're going to hope for, you know, both. We'll find the answer, we'll find the cure, um, but we need to care for people um, and it's really really important and my obviously hopefully comes through in this interview my passion is to figure out the most dignified way to do that and the most meaningful way um, there's lots of lots of different ways to care for people um, this is just one option 
Well, Scott, your passion is certainly coming through in this yeah. interview. I can assure you of that. Good. I have just two more questions you got for it. you. Uh, the first one, what has been your biggest surprise so far throughout this process? That's a great question. I don't know if I've been asked that one before. Biggest surprise. Um, I think probably the biggest surprise is just, uh, you know, reminiscence in and of itself is very powerful. So we've had a lot of um, professionals come through here, and, and Brad, you're here today, so you'll get a chance to see as well, but, um, so I don't want to bias you, but we've had a lot of individuals come in and be, um, there's been kind of an emotional reaction. Um, there's, and, and you wonder, and I've asked, um, is that because uh, they're feeling their own emotions of reminiscence come through? Um, and I think the answer sometimes is yes. Um, but a lot of times the answer is that, uh, or the, one of the reasons is that uh, it's very inspiring for them to, to see that um, there can be, and I know it's a little bit overstated or cliche these days, but that there is this disruption to the space a little bit, you know, so that, um, you know, if you can kind of dream it, um, and that's what this is. I mean, this was absolutely a dream. There was a lot of people who doubted that this really could come together. Um, and that's okay because that motivated this entire team. Um, so, so I think, um, to some degree, the surprise is we, we, we knew that we could create, uh, an authentic environment and that was the focus. Um, and I, I guess I'm surprised and pleased that it is as impactful as it is for professionals. I always knew it would, honestly, I always knew it would be impactful for participants because I've been around um, reminiscence therapy for so long uh, in my career and have seen it firsthand in caregiving, uh, including things like music, you know, um, any kind of visual, tangible prompts from somebody's past that, that are meaningful to them almost always have an emotional impact on the individual. Obviously, every case is a little different, and as you evolve through the disease at a certain point, you won't have those um, reactions, but almost every time I show a kind of visual prompt or an auditory prompt um, to someone with Alzheimer's, they have a reaction to that. We've seen that time and time again. So to create an immersive environment, um, it's been very impressive to see uh, what that does for the participant. But again, going back to your question, I think I'm, I'm surprised but pleased that it has as much of an impact on people without Alzheimer's, um, just as much as it does with people that have Alzheimer's. Certainly, and, and my last question for you, yeah. Scott, is uh, I'm curious, so the, the intent of this podcast is to educate young professionals who are aspiring to become leaders in this industry. So what is your advice for that young professional in the aging services space? Um, my advice is, number one, make sure it's something you are passionate about doing. So, um, again, that was certainly always a goal of mine, you know, when, when, I, when I speak at given any opportunity, because I, I thank you, Brad, for the opportunity to share the story, I, to share uh, the passion, because hopefully that inspires somebody. Um, to go out and, and look closely at the, the profession. So if you're listening to this for the first time or you know, um, you're wondering, if, is, is this profession right for me? Um, you know, go find out, go find out if it's right for you. Meaning um, you know, whether you go volunteer, whether you take a position, um, even if it's an entry level position, find out if you love 
uh, and your passion about serving older adults, um, if, it's, if it's Alzheimer's disease or any other related dementia that you're passionate about, go look at that. Um, you know, I think that kind of advice, you know, certainly I was given that advice early on, uh, e even from my parents, you know, so, and I try to do that, the same thing for my children, um, you know, because if you can do that, then obviously you're, you've, you've found something that is not just a job. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a passion and, and it's a profession and you're most likely to stick to that, um, long term. The other thing of course, is that, you know, um, don't get discouraged if you can't kind of break in uh, immediately as you know perhaps an executive director or uh, an administrator I'm living proof that 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 route uh, uh, was not even an option to me right I, I as I shared earlier I mean I, I took multiple positions you know starting with the first one which couldn't have been more entry level which a non-certified you know caregiver you know, in, 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 in an Alzheimer's facility making minimum wage, you know, so, but, but the, the spark was, was obviously created at that point. So, you know, get in there, figure out if it's what you want to do, and then, and then seek out people that are, um, that are people that you think can uh, guide you, if you will, or at least provide you with opportunities and, and show that passion because, I think that most leaders in this in this business now, and yes, it's the business of taking care of people, but it's still a business. Whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit, you still you still have to have everything has to pencil, as I would say, and I and I've had mentors say that to me over the years. So if you can show that that passion and your kind of business acumen can match, um, you know, I I think that that's very attractive to employers um, because most of my colleagues would tell you that they they hire for personality and passion and they train for skill so if you've got that um, you're you're going to I think you can go far in this profession and we we need uh, talented people that can bring that passion to this space absolutely and again thank you so much Scott for your time it's been an absolute pleasure and I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to help us on this podcast thank you Hey, don't go anywhere just yet. I'm going to take just a few moments to describe the town square. So when I first walked into the space, it felt like I had just stepped out of a time machine. The first things I saw included a 1950s Ford Thunderbird and a classic old school diner where the day caring individuals were busy eating lunch. Glancing across the way at one of the many storefronts, I could see the gone fish and pub complete with 1950s era decor, highlighting sports icons like Yogi Berra. The newspaper stand across the way similarly featured authentic 50s era newspapers with era appropriate headlines that positively trigger memories for the visitors. The library reminded me of the cozy corner in my college dorm study space, secluded from the world yet surrounded by decades old publications. I think the highest compliment I can offer, despite the time warp I experienced, at no point did I feel like I was in an, in an environment that was built for individuals with cognitive impairments. Everything felt so normal. Most notably, in the city hall, I met a woman busy with clerical work. Scott said hello, and as to not be rude, I briefly introduced myself before continuing along. I had no idea that she wasn't staff, but rather an individual who was daycaring at Glenner who felt comfortable doing mock work in the office. Again, everything feels so normal and real 
because it is normal and real. This isn't The Truman Show. This isn't James Franco lamenting fake fruit while exploring false storefronts in Seth Rogen's interview. Everything within these different rooms is real. It just happens to be catered to an older adult population. I think it felt normal because the team really thought everything out. The support beams are a great example. They're so well disguised that even though I was actively looking out for clever design, I completely overlooked them until Scott pointed them out. The bottom half of one was disguised as a tree in the town square's park. Two others blended in as interconnected telephone poles. Another cleverly supported the basketball hoop. The artful cover-up is essential. After all, wouldn't support beams seem out of place in a park? This could have been a weakness, but they used the beams as opportunities to showcase creativity. I can't say it enough, the space really showcases intentional design and attention to detail. Each of the examples I'm about to highlight is more detailed than the previous one. So the town here is, is again, it's, it's this big airy space that's broken out into different areas. And there's so many little nuances. So for instance, the design of their city hall, which again discreetly hides administrative office space in the rear, is mimicked after San Diego City Hall. If you look at a picture of Glenner's City Hall compared to San Diego City Hall, again, the, the resemblance is uncanny. There's also a flag with 48 stars hanging rather than 50 because Alaska and Hawaii didn't become states until 1959. To give an example of how detailed they are, here's another one. So there's a replica version of the classic Uncle Sam, I Want You poster that was utilized in World War I and revived for World War II army recruiting. However, World War II ended in 1945, and Glenner Town Square is designed to look more 1950s. That's why the poster is intentionally faded, to look like it's been hanging there for a while. I mean, again, they really thought out all of these little details. Glenner's model is fascinating. It is a game-changing concept, and it was my pleasure to tour the town square and talk to Scott about it. Scott Tardy is so down-to-earth, and he was so generous with his time. Perhaps I shouldn't have been surprised by this. After all, he's not only a former ED, but also a former caregiver who worked for a minimum wage. He really does understand all facets of this business. Again, major thanks to Scott and to Glenner for their hospitality. And to you, thank you for listening. And stay tuned as this podcast will continue to cover interesting concepts in aging services.